Good afternoon, everybody. Um, my name is Judith Courier. I'm from the University of California, Los Angeles. And I'm pleased to be here with Dr. Kara Chu, who I will let introduce herself in a minute. Um, we are here today to talk about early treatment for COVID-19, meaning outpatient treatment. Um, and a few just housekeeping things before we get started. Um, today, the, the chat function on Zoom is disabled, but you are able to put your questions in using the Q&A button. Um, Dr. Chu and I are gonna talk um, back and forth, have a conversation about this topic for about 40 minutes, and then we will open up for the questions. Um, and um, we, this, the dialogue that we're having today is not um, available for CME, but it will be available um, as a web or podcast after the event. Um, so just making sure that folks know that. Um, but we're, we're really looking forward to um, sharing some information and talking about this important topic of, of early treatment for COVID. So I mentioned I'm at the University of California, um, Los Angeles, where I'm an infectious disease uh, clinician and a professor of medicine and chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases. I'm also the chair of the AIDS Clinical Trials Group. And in the last year, I've been involved in um, COVID outpatient therapy through the uh, NIH Foundation's Active Partnership and a study called Active 2 that we'll talk more about. But one of the leaders of the Active 2 trial and protocol co-chair is Dr. Kara Chu. Kara, do you want to introduce yourself? Yep. Thanks, Judy. Uh, so like Judy, I'm at UCLA, also an infectious disease physician. I'm a, an associate professor. Um, and uh, for the last year or more, I've been working um, every day, uh, 24 hours a day with a great team on the Active 2 trial, um, trying to find effective and safe outpatient therapeutics for COVID. Um, and uh, previously, prior to COVID, was an HIV and HCV hep C clinician and researcher and now, probably like many of you, a COVID clinician and researcher. So, I mean, I think it kind of goes without, without saying too much, but Kara, maybe just start off with a little bit about your thoughts about why it's important to have outpatient treatment for early treatment for COVID. Yeah, so, I mean, I think um, we're all aware of the massive global impact of COVID. Um, over 136 million cases now worldwide, almost 3 million deaths reported. And so even with vaccines being rolled out, um, we, we, we see, we know the pandemic is ongoing and um, there are many that are suffering from serious complications um, and still a need for effective therapeutics. And we've made a little bit of progress, but we, we really still need um, more scalable therapies, which we'll talk about today. Um, and, and I think, you know, we need treatments, not just for those um, serious, uh, to prevent those serious complications like hospitalizations and, and deaths, but, but also the long-term sequela that we're observing in some people who, who uh, most of whom are, are not hospitalized actually. Um, and then further need a treatment to prevent transmission um, and, you know, help curb this pandemic. Yeah, I, th and I think those are really the key points. And, you know, if you think back over this past year, we, we really have not had any easy to give effective early treatment. And the um, consequences of that have been enormous. Um, I think it's been 
you know, if we had something that could prevent transmission uh, within households and prevent hospitalization, um, this pandemic could have turned out to be very different than it has been. And I think even, you know, despite the fact that vaccines are rolling out, we will always have people who are unvaccinated or can't respond to vaccines that we need treatment for. So um, these efforts are, are needed and um, need to continue. Um, but it's been challenging to study uh, outpatient COVID, and you've been very involved in setting up a site to do so. Do you want to just talk a little bit about what some of these challenges have been and, and how, they've, how they've been overcome? Mm -hmm. So this is a new disease um, and with, with new you know, concerns for, for transmission risk. Um, so I think one of the biggest challenges with setting up treatment, treatment sites and, and study sites has, has been um, literally the, the logistics of that. So right, like finding the space at our medical centers or you know, even if we wanted to try to branch that out to um, community-based centers, finding the space, creating the space to, to safely see um, people who are COVID um, positive, um, considering the infection prevention um, requirements. There are also logistics around um, finding um, and licensing a space for administering investigational therapies. So uh, I think very new um, circumstances for us to um, rapidly respond to. Yeah, and I think the other issue has been just that um, the disease is, it's a, obviously it's a new disease, but it's a disease of incredible extremes where, you know, the majority of people don't get sick. But when somebody is diagnosed, we don't know if they're going to be the one who's going to get sick and need to be hospitalized or if they're going to be just fine. And then we also, as you mentioned before, don't know whether what the long-term consequences of the infection are going to be. So developing and designing studies and figuring out who we should treat um, has also been a big challenge. And we're definitely learning more about that. But when, when you have a new disease like this, it's, I think it's essential that, that rigorous studies be done to evaluate therapeutics. Um, and that means in the absence of any effective therapy, having a placebo group um, until such time that we have treatments that work. Um, because we don't know how, you know, in observational studies, we don't know what factors to control for. And we know that a lot of people are gonna get better without doing anything. So I think that's been a real challenge in the whole field is, the lack of really rigorously designed um, controlled studies that um, have good ascertainment of the diagnosis. Um, and that was hard in the beginning because getting tested was really hard and people had you know, lack of access to testing. Um, and so some studies were done where it was a self-reported diagnosis of COVID, which is very nonspecific or, um, and so, so that, that's been, that was really a, a critical thing. Um, and, and other, yeah, go ahead. I'll just add, like, just speaking to endpoints and designing these studies. I think more than once we said we're kind of, um, is it building the plane as, as we fly it, um, um, where we're learning about the disease as, as we go. Um, and, you know, at this point, in terms of outcome measures for studies, um, there are no validated surrogates for um, serious outcomes like hospitalization or death. So no validated virology surrogates or, or even, um, you know, sort of softer clinical endpoints, symptom-based endpoints um, as a surrogate for hospitalizations and deaths. And in designing studies to, to look for benefit, um, to design one with an, with an outcome of, or an endpoint of hospitalizations and deaths requires a really, really large sample size um, 
or restriction of the study population to those who are, um, you know, most most at high, most at risk for for COVID progression. And and then even then, like you know, like so we have those risk factors that we've identified for for COVID progression for hospitalization, um, but there are still some who will go on to um, develop severe disease that don't meet those criteria. Um, and uh, there's still a lot that that we're learning. Yeah, I think another one of the challenges was, or it continues to be that, you know, people are diagnosed with COVID, they're told to stay home and to quarantine appropriately to avoid contact with other people, except for the people in their house. Um, and, um, and, and so there's a real hesitancy for people to come out and go and be seen and enroll in a clinical trial. I mean, there are challenges for if you don't have a way to get to a site, you know, um, through private vehicle, I think many people appropriately are concerned about taking public transportation or, you know, how would they get there? And then also just the, the, the you know, everything, at least initially and in some places continues to be, you know, pretty shut down. So the idea that you're going to venture out and go somewhere um, it is, was a challenge and really, I think, limited a lot of people from looking for opportunities to, um, to participate in studies. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of progress has been made, and um, I think we're going to divide this conversation up into kind of two parts of what, what's been found to be effective and what we're still looking at. So maybe um, here we are a year later, you want to talk a little bit, start off with um, the progress that's been made with monoclonal antibodies, because Absolutely. it's been pretty significant. Yeah, so um, so that is what we have available to our outpatients with COVID-19, their um, monoclonal antibodies targeting, targeting the SARS-CoV-2 um, spike protein. Um, and there are several that have um, received emergency use authorization from the FDA. So really these agents are, these, these antibodies are still considered investigational at this moment. They don't have FDA approval. Um, and, um, but there's been some level of evidence for um, benefit in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. Um, and overall so far, they, they look to be um, quite safe. So the very first antibody that became available was um, bamlanivimab. That was a single monoclonal antibody targeting um, an epitope on the receptor binding domain. Um, of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And then following that, we, we got um, bamlanivimab, edisevimab, a combination monoclonal antibody of, of monoclonal antibodies, and then casarivimab, imdevimab, another combination. Now, um, one of the challenges is that these are given intravenously, um, each, uh, and they're given over about an hour or so, and then they require an hour of monitoring. Um, and so, uh, but the good news is that they are available um, to, some, to some individuals. And we have phase three data now um, supporting the initial phase two data that led to the, to the EUAs. Um, and overall, for the most part, these monoclonal antibodies um, appear to um, confer about a 70% relative reduction in hospitalizations um, and deaths in higher risk individuals. Um, but, you know, these, these studies are still, um, uh, generally, generally small, the, the phase three study is obviously um, bigger, um, and we're seeing in terms of the differences in, um, in hospitalization rates, something on the order of six to seven percent in the placebo recipients versus one, one to two percent in the, in the active treated. Um, another, you know, limitation um, to this is that the EUA monoclonals 
um, are limited to high risk individuals. Um, uh, and, um, and those are individuals who have risk factors for disease progression um, and also do not currently meet um, criteria for hospitalization or have increased or new oxygen requirements. Um, and so um, we, we don't have therapies um, for, for those uh, who are not considered high risk. Um, I just wanted to also just mention, just in terms of these monoclonals, so, that, so they all target different epitopes on the receptor binding domain um, of the spike protein. Um, and so they're not all the same. Um, they, um, some target uh, in terms of these and, and, and uh, monoclonal antibodies that are coming. Um, some target the, um, the, the region that, does, that, that interacts directly with the ACE2 receptor um, and others don't. Um, and they also have different abilities to bind the, prote the spike protein depending on the conformation of binding protein. We've, I've learned a lot about these monoclonals over time. Um, and, and so they also have different susceptibilities to these variants that we're now seeing and to mutations in the variants that might interfere um, with the binding of these monoclonals and their activity. Um, and so with these variants then, Judy, maybe you can comment on um, the impact of these variants on the activity of, of the monoclonals that have an EUA. Yeah, thanks, Kara. I, I think that um, the this is the the uh, sort of Achilles heel of this approach. Um, if you have a monoclonal antibody, it's directed towards one target, and you get mutations, and that target is part of that, then the agent won't work any longer, it'll be less effective. And so um, they're now, and that's why the combinations are have gotten approvals because they've shown that they, you know, have act, they have activity um, and testing that's underway is really trying to evaluate their retention of this activity across these variants. Um, so what, you know, one of the things that, that's been learned about the monoclonals is they have to be used really early. I mean, the, the benefit is really best seen in those who receive treatment early. And some of the studies have required less than five days of symptoms. Um, and so that, that, that requires people to be aware that there's a treatment that might be available and to get tested and then to seek out that treatment. And I think that pathway is not, you know, fully, fully realized. And it's been, there's been a tremendous amount of effort to try to make these antibodies available, but it's, it's not been, you know, as successful, I think, as people would like to see, and the full potential has not been realized because of the complexity of setting up places to do this. Um, and, you know, some, um, infusion centers have been converted for this, but I think, you know, for the most part, that finding a place where people can safely receive this treatment has taken longer. And we, you know, as a healthcare system, we're not set up for this. And so they are, the treatment's made available at no cost to the to the patient, but the infrastructure for delivering it has to be organized. And I think some places have done an amazing job of figuring out how to do this, um, but it's certainly not equitably distributed around the country. And the fact that it has to be given early, um, I think is also a big challenge. I mean, there have been some studies looking at the monoclonal antibodies in the inpatient setting added to remdesivir where it has not shown any additional benefit. So it's definitely an early, an early treatment um, 
that requires early treatment. And people who, the studies from Regeneron have looked at the presence of antibody at the time of treatment, and they were, they were best able to demonstrate the antiviral effect in those who did not yet have antibody, but they still saw some clinical benefit even if people had developed um, antibody. So um, it's been, a, you know, I think we have learned a lot. We've also learned a little bit about if it has to be given so early, well, what about giving it for prevention to people who have been exposed? And there's a recent study that came out this week about the high risk of, high rate of household transmission. And is that a, you know, an area to focus on for control of, of this kind of infection. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the prevention studies? Sure, yeah. They just came, some of that information was in the press just yesterday. Yeah, I mean, I think that the prevention studies, some of which are really more like early treatment <laughs> studies, um, highlight the need or the, the benefit of giving these monoclonals early. Um, and so there were a couple, um, uh, studies presented at CROI this year, um, just, just last month uh, for casarivimab and devimab, that, that combination, um, that was given in a household contact study. Um, and in, in, that, in that study, there were individuals who were both um, SARS-CoV-2 positive and negative at study entry. That's what I, I think I consider some of these more like early treatment. And then, and they were given MABs within 96 hours of their, of the of the um, symptomatic household contact, um, uh, first being positive on a SARS-CoV-2 test. Um, and basically none of those um, household contacts who got the active combination monoclonals um, uh, developed symptomatic PCR positive infection um, versus uh, the number here, 3.6% 3 amongst the placebo recipients. Um, and also uh, for those that did develop infection, they had lower peak viral loads and, and also a shorter duration of shedding. So a week compared to three to four weeks of shedding um, in the active treatment arm versus the placebo. So it seems uh, to be, there seems to be a, a true antiviral effect here. Um, and, and given in this, in this very early period after exposure um, or with a positive SARS-CoV-2 test and infection, but, um, but, without, um, but without symptoms. And then similarly um, at CROI, there were some data presented for bamlanivimab. Um, there was a study where that was given in a long-term care facility um, where there's a, you know, a case of, uh, of SARS-CoV-2 um, and that was given um, uh, randomized compared to placebo to both the residents of the facility and also um, staff at the facility. And, and very similar findings were seen. Um, lower viral loads, they seem to clear the virus faster. Um, and less, um, less development of symptomatic disease or progression of symptoms, so. Yeah, I think one thing that we're hoping to learn from these studies is the um, relationship between the viral load early on, the change in viral load with treatment and the risk for later disease progression, both in the, sh in the short term and the long term, because if we could, if we had this validated surrogate, and you could show that a treatment that reduced viral load by some number of days after symptom onset correlated really well with protecting people against more severe disease, then we could use that to evaluate drugs, and we wouldn't have to wait to see if the drug, you know, led to hospitalization. And I know that there's a lot of work going on to try to figure out what that 
magic association is. But you know, as it's been pointed out by many, this test of what we call viral load is a sampling of virus in the nasopharynx. Um, it's not a it's not the same as measuring it in your blood. You know that that this is it's kind of got you know there are some limitations to this measure, but it does appear that some of the early um, analyses of the data, at least in the Lilly publication in the New England Journal, suggested that there was a relationship between persistent viral load and the um, and the risk of hospitalization. So I hope that that's an area where much, you know, that we can learn about um, faster ways to evaluate the effectiveness of drugs. And it is, you know, we're, the monoclonals are focused on the virus, but we also need to think about um, um, you know, uh, other types of treatment. But before we do that, uh, the future of MABs, where do you think we're going with these monoclonal antibodies? Yeah, I mean, I think um, our experience so far has really made it clear that IV administered monoclonals are, um, are not scalable and easily implemented. So um, there are monoclonals in development that are under study um, uh, with different routes of administration, easier, easier to give, um, presumably, we think so, um, in, by intramuscular injection, subcutaneous injection, um, and um, even consideration of inhaled routes of administration. And so um, there's, I think there's uh, a lot we're learning about um, the pharmacokinetics of MAPS delivered um, by those routes, but, but um, there does seem to be um, a, a role for, for MAPS for therapeutics, um, but we need, we need uh, different routes of administration and, and those, those are coming. Yeah, I mean, and I think though, until we get them, it's just, it is really important for people to realize that this is a treatment that is available, that can be available in the outpatient setting. And there are some great resources for trying to locate this in different communities. And there's been a lot of effort to, to, um, to help expand the um, capacity. I think a lot of clinicians are kind of you know, skeptical and feel like the evidence is not that strong. Um, but I think there is some good evidence for high risk um, people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't, it's not that we don't think they would work in people that are lower risk. It's just that for an emergency use authorization, the approval is made, you know, based on a relatively small safety database in the setting of an emergency um, to say that this, this treatment has more benefit than risk. Um, and with some of the surges that are going on around the U.S. and other parts, you know, places in the world, it just, it's, it, I hope that there can be more um, utilization of this, you know, this resource um, that's, that's been made available. Yeah, I mean, I agree, absolutely. And, and, and encouraging um, for those who are, who do qualify um, early, early treatment. So, um, and that does require rapid testing and, um, and, and, and easy access, but um, there, there are more and more options, it seems, to, to try to access the, the monoclonals. Um, and in terms of the future, another, another thing I would consider or, or that we, you know, I think is important to be aware of is we, we see the impact of the variants. Judy pointed out the, um, the sort of narrowness of the monoclonals um, in terms of their targets. So um, the future does, um, you know, appear to potentially hold more combination therapies um, and um, combination monoclonals, um, and also uh, monoclonals that target more conserved regions. So uh, there's a monoclonal from VIR and GSK um, that was actually uh, an antibody originally isolated from someone who had 
the original SARS-CoV, um, not SARS-CoV-2, um, and that antibody looks to target looks looks to target um, a conserved region across SARS-CoV-viruses, um, and um, and and antibodies with those targets um, are you know likely to be less susceptible to variants since mutations are uh, you know less commonly arise in in these conserved regions. So. Yeah, I think we'll see more combinations coming and new routes of administration, but others. Yeah, so so Judy, okay, so we so so now we're fully aware that monoclonals are really available for uh, high risk individuals. So what do we have um, for those who don't meet EUA criteria? Yeah, so that's really the big, 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 big hole here is that we don't have an oral or easily uh, scalable available agent for people who are um, who are lower risk. Um, and I kind of put these the candidates and there are many into some different buckets. Um, so there are antivirals that are you know being evaluated that were developed for other RNA viruses or polymerase inhibitors. Um, one from developed by a pharmaceutical company called Ridgeback that started out with the name of um, EIDD2081, but now is MK44A2 or mm -hmm. molnupiravir. Um, it, it is an antiviral, and there was some data presented at CROI. So this is an investigational agent, so not something that's available um, on the, you know, for other uses, but um, some interesting data that looked at um, ability of this virus to reduce um, basically infectious virus um, and positive virus culture in, in um, people who had early um, COVID-19. And they showed a very significant reduction by day five in infectious virus. So this is this compounds in um, completing phase two studies with Merck. And I think, um, you know, hopefully will be continue to be evaluated as a possible antiviral. It's effective against influenza, I believe, and, um, and other viruses. Um, favipiravir is another agent not available to prescribe, but um, I think it is in Japan, but not in the US, which is also being tested as an oral antiviral and um, phase two studies have been done. Um, and there's some preliminary data. We look forward to seeing where, where that lands in terms of its, um, its effectiveness. Um, there's also been work with um, Savospibir for the hepatitis C drug. And I think on the whole, the data is not really that um, encouraging in terms of the, its antiviral effect, but most of that work has been done on hospitalized patients. And so it's possible that an agent that didn't look so good on hospitalized patients that's an antiviral might work better um, in early disease. There are protease inhibitors in development. Um, there's Camistat, um, which is a drug that was approved for pancreatic fibrosis um, that may work on the uh, serine protease. Um, that's being stu studied in a study called Camelot, um, which is being done. And then it's also part of our active two trial. So it's an oral agent and look forward to seeing whether how that performs. Um, and then there's a lot of other kinds of drugs. So these other um, host drugs directed therapies. I think the one that some of the ones that we've heard the most about are ivermectin um, and fluvoxamine. Um, ivermectin is an antiparasitic drug and it's been used widely around the world as a possible treatment for COVID-19. I think 
more larger definitive trials are in the process of, um, of being conducted and organized. And I think we'll see once and for all whether that's effective. It's currently not recommended by the DHHS guidelines group. And then fluvoxamine, which is um, was studied um, in a fully remote trial, which I think is another really exciting and interesting thing that's happened during COVID are some very novel study designs. So this was, um, this was studied in a setting where the patients actually never came, participants never came to the site. They had the drug, they were basically enrolled um, you know, over Zoom or by telephone and the drug was sent to them and they, they reported their symptoms. And so in a, um, a relatively small study, um, the, but it was a randomized placebo controlled study. I think there were 80 in the fluvoxamine group and 70 in the placebo group. This was reported by Eric Lenz and his colleagues in JAMA. You showed some evidence of um, preventing clinical deterioration. Um, and so larger studies with this agent are currently being conducted. Um, so that's just a few. I don't know if there's others that you want to highlight amongst the myriad, or I guess I need to talk about one more, and that's convalescent plasma. Um, from the very earliest um, time of COVID, there's been a real strong interest in the role of convalescent plasma. Uh, obtained from people recovered from the infection, initially a large expanded access program in hospitalized patients, um, but also there's been interest in the evaluation of this in the outpatient setting, um, and because it likely as an antibody treatment, and it's multiple antibodies, I think the issues is it's hard to standardize what you're getting in uh, convalescent plasma, and it's also been challenging to know what should be measured as showing that it's an effective um, unit. But regardless, um, studies are ongoing, placebo-controlled studies are ongoing in the outpatient setting and look forward to seeing more rigorous data. I think there was one study from South America that showed some benefit in older patients and then also in people who have um, who have B-cell defects. Um, I think there's been really some of the more, most promising data there. But, yeah, I think for that um, study in South America, if I'm thinking of the same one, it was in older patients and also very, very early in their symptom course within 72 hours of symptom onset, um, where there was potential benefit. I mean, kind of consistent with the monoclonal data as well for you know very early use of antibody-based therapy. Yeah, we just, I think just also just recently heard about a study with um, budesonide um, inhaled steroid, um, which is an interesting um, approach to treatment. Um, and, um, and, and I think the study was not placebo control. I think it was open label, but did show some um, lack of progression in those who received this treatment. And again, I think that the timing issue here, you know, there may be that anti drugs that have a direct antiviral effect need to be used early, but as you get a little further out, there may be, this is where some of the anti-inflammatory drugs before needing hospitalization, you know, could be effective. Um, and then the interferons. Do you want to say anything about interferons? That's another whole class that's being looked at, both lambda and beta interferon. Yeah, I think that there, there was um, one study of, of lambda interferon that's been published that showed um, potential benefit in the outpatient setting, um, but still more evaluation needed. Uh, another route that we're studying in, in active too is inhaled interferon, 
um, and interferon, I think uh, we all know is a um, is is uh, potentially ineffective, uh, just um, antiviral, not SARS-CoV-2 targeted, um, but uh, still early days for the interferon data. Yeah, yeah it comes I think, with toxicities potentially, especially systemically given. So um, yeah, I think if you're looking for, I, I think that's another key issue is that we need, you know, we need drugs and studies that evaluate preventing progression of disease and hospitalization, but we also would like to show prevention or improvement in symptoms. And I think coming up with you know, rigorous assessment of symptoms and their resolution um, has been challenging to get a consensus of what's, what's a symptom improvement and, and how long does it have to last before you say it improved? <laughs> yes, I mean, um, as a new disease, we've, we've been learning about what even through our studies, what the most common symptoms are. And, um, and how severe they are uh, across a, a study population. Um, and it can be quite varied, although some are coming out as, as, as much more common, which you've probably seen in your own patients, which is cough and fatigue um, uh, and GI symptoms be, being less common. But then how do we measure improvement? That's definitely a challenge. And there are different ways to measure it. And what, what the studies so far that have um, reported out have used has been time to sustained resolution. Um, you know, time to the first of a couple days um, where those symptoms are, are gone uh, of a list of targeted symptoms. And so what symptoms do we include in that list of targeted symptoms that, um, that we look for resolution or improvement in? And, and uh, some, some, um, some studies have excluded um, mild cough or fatigue in, in that outcome. Um, and so I think there's a lot that we are um, struggling with in terms of thinking about um, you know, if those symptoms are persistent, does that really mean, um, you know, resolution of, of infection? Is that a, is that clinically um, significant still to the individual? So there's a, there's a lot we're learning uh, uh, as we go. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the hardest things for clinicians is keeping up with the new information and what, you know, what every, it seems like every day a new study comes out and, or come out as a preprint and there'll be a lot of excitement and then it kind of disappears and it doesn't show up as a peer reviewed publication. And I think we can all just be eternally grateful to the guidelines groups who are sifting through this information on a regular basis and really applying kind of rigorous um, set of criteria to evaluating, you know, whether this should be considered uh, something that can be recommended. And we have both the DHHS and the IDSA guidelines groups. And I, you know, I think that we look to them uh, to put these, to put all the results of these studies into um, into context and to evaluate their, you know, how much um, how much certainty we can take with the results, because um, it is it is it is really really hard to keep up with this field. Yeah, and I'll just add um, these guidelines are right constantly being updated um, frequently, um, and so. Uh, I do turn to them myself um, uh, frequently. And um, just because I don't think we've said it yet, right now, the only um, endorsed treatments for outpatient COVID are um, the combination monoclonals. So from the NIH guidelines, the BAM lenivimab, edisevimab, and the casarivimab and devimab combo. And from the IDSA guidelines, which um, uh, were not as recently updated, the BAM lenivimab, edisevimab combo. But, but those two are really. Um, those two are really the, the endorsed um, monoclonals that, that continue to retain activity against uh, the most of the variants. So, 
Yeah, and I, I want to make a comment. Thank you, Guido Silvestri, for your for your question in the Q and A about um, you know making the claim that these are not scalable. I mean, I think what I think the point is it's been they're difficult to scale, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And I you know as 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 has been noted, seventy percent reduction in hospitalization in high risk people. If we had taken that approach and said you know antiretroviral therapy is not scalable, we're not going to try to give it to people. Um, we wouldn't have made the progress we made. So I think it's a really good point that we should try to make them available as much as we can while we continue to look for easier to deliver therapies and, and not just throw, we're not saying throw in the towel. We're saying keep going, uh, keep improving and keep, um, keep moving towards finding better things that can be made more widely, widely available. So I, I do want to make sure that 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 point is that I don't think either of us are saying we shouldn't try to scale them while we look for other treatments. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I think the the, um, the phase three data have, have really, you know, sort of supported the benefit um, uh, of the MABs and, and, um, and we need to make the community aware um, of the MABs because I, I think one issue is that, um, you know, we it may be that um, the most vulnerable, the most uh, some of the most at risk are not even aware, and um, and and we we need some way um, for um, for our community, our scientific community, our community of um, healthcare providers to advocate for those individuals and for them to advocate for themselves as well by being aware. Yeah. Um. And I think in terms of what we still need, um, you know, obviously drugs for all stages of disease, we need drugs that we can use that that pregnant women can take. And I think this has been a real issue in the um, clinical trials that have been done with some of the early treatments. Um, uh, pregnant women were excluded. Convalescent plasma was one of the only ones where um, pregnant women were allowed to be enrolled. Then um, we know that pregnancy is a time when the severity of COVID um, can be more um, intense and the outcomes can be impacted. So that's certainly um, an, un, an unmet need. Um, and then also obviously drugs that work against these variants. So some of these um, other approaches, antivirals that aren't monoclonals, um, we don't expect the variants to have reduced uh, susceptibility to them. Um, yeah, you know, there's Go some ahead. questions about um, uh, the role of remdesivir in the ambulatory setting. Uh, there are ongoing clinical trials um, enrolling, as I understand it, um, for remdesivir in this setting, given for, um, in one trial, given for three days IV. Um, and so the longer duration is, is given to hospitalized patients. But I'm not aware of any readout, um, early readout of those studies. And so um, I, I am aware that there are some studies, some um, some medical centers that are offering IV remdesivir in the outpatient setting, but potentially just to those that would otherwise meet hospitalization criteria. Uh, so, sure, Judy, if you're aware of any other data. Yeah, no, I'm not. I don't know. And then other formulations of remdesivir, I think maybe being studied, but I don't have any um, any details um, on those. Um, so yeah, maybe we can move to the questions now, looking through some of the, one, there's one question about um, combinations of approaches. And I think this is a, a really 
um, important thing. Um, certainly we have combinations of antibodies, but combinations of, of agents that work in different ways. Um, first, we have to find things that work on their own and then put them together and see if they work together. So like an inhaled steroid with a monoclonal or you know, drugs that work through different mechanisms um, in high-risk uh, patients might also, well, in, even in low-risk. Um, so combinations, definitely, you know, something's for the future. The, there's also questions about um, vitamins. Um, we didn't talk about vitamin D, zinc, vitamin C. I mean, these are all, there's been an incredible amount of interest in this. I think vitamin D deficiency is a marker of, um, of of several you know, indications of, of, of health status and studies linking low vitamin D to poor outcomes are, you know, have been shown. Whether supplementing vitamin D will alter that outcome, um, I think has been, has still needs to be shown conclusively. I'm not aware of any data that, that makes that um, very clear, but I think there's a lot of interest in it. Um, yeah, I think, um... Most of the clinical trials data um, has been in, in the hospitalized patient setting. Uh, and so um, I'm not so aware of um, data in the outpatient setting. And um, though I think a lot of individuals are being, um, it's, they're being these vitamins are being suggested. To, uh, there is absolutely a recommendation to not give, for, for example, zinc um, uh, beyond the recommended doses. Uh, for, for COVID-19 prevention or treatment. Um, and then there's a question here about, you know, the post-acute COVID symptoms um, and, and any sort of therapeutics for that. And I think one of the big questions, and hopefully the active two outpatient trial will be able to contribute to this, is whether receiving effective therapy early in the course of disease in any way mitigates or prevents or eliminates the development of long-term symptoms for COVID. So that's being um, looked at in the follow-up. We just don't have that many people who have, you know, who are that far out to be able to um, report anything yet. But I think that's going to be a key finding as to whether if you can treat early, you can basically prevent this from happening. But given the amount, the amount of people that have um, post-COVID symptoms right now, I'm not aware of, of um, therapeutic um, interventions that are being tested. Certainly yeah. a lot of interest in vaccination and whether that improves the post-COVID symptoms, but um, I don't know, are you, are you aware of anything? I think that there may be, there are some studies in the pulmonary and cardiology realm um, uh, looking at potentially, I believe, anticoagulation as well, um, just multimodal interventions for, for these long-term chronic symptoms. Yeah. That, actually, that's an, a, a big area I left out in terms of their other outpatient therapies are um, the treatments with uh, anticoagulation, aspirin, um, and other um, agents that work through the coagulation system because of many of the acute uh, progression of COVID is associated with coagulation abnormalities. So there are um, 
active four, the active four B study is looking at abixaban, I think, and aspirin in um, outpatients to see whether it can prevent um, progression of disease. So those studies are underway and we should hopefully have results from them soon. Because that is a very scalable uh, an intervention that could be um, applied if uh, shown to be effective. Mm -hmm. And in in that active four study looking at a I think also a cardiac and pulmonary outcome specifically. Um, yeah, comparing low and low, low and high dose, uh, higher dose, more like like prophylactic versus therapeutic dose of pixaban and uh, low dose aspirin versus placebo. Um, okay, with other question about well, there is a question here about subcutaneous um, injectable monoclonals. So um, there are the um, um, there is a in subcutaneous uh, monoclonal that's being evaluated. I believe Regeneron's evaluating their antibody in the subcutaneous um, delivery, and there's an antibody combination from Rockefeller BMS that's so being will be evaluated using the sub-Q route. Um, and I don't know about scalability and overall, you know, success for particularly for sub Q. I mean, I think sub Q obviously will be easier than IV, but it will still require interaction with the healthcare provider of some sort. Um, so that I think is yet to be seen um, the significant advantage, but certainly will make it quicker to deliver um, and may it may expand the number of the types of locations where it can also be delivered. Um, yeah, I think the other the other question is how much monitoring is needed, um, which adds to the time required for the interaction with the with the healthcare system. There have been a couple of questions about colchicine. Um, that data are available only as a preprint, I believe. Um, and so I think that um, uh, the, that data certainly don't establish the benefits of colchicine um, and, and more data are needed. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting approach as an anti-inflammatory agent um, and uh, one that I think for short periods of time can be well tolerated, um, maybe even for longer periods of time, depending on the dose. Um, but I think that um, we really need to wait for the published data to see more about the details of the study. It was stopped a little bit early, which was, I, I guess, because they felt the results were so promising. Um, and so looking to see more information about that. Um, but it certainly, I think it's, a, it's an interesting approach. Um, There's a question about, um, the use and controversies of using monoclonal antibodies after vaccination in, in vaccinated individuals. Uh, well, there, there is theoretical concern that the, um, I suppose that the um, having been vaccinated would might, um, uh, I'm not sure actually, interfere with monoclonal antibody um, activity um, or that there may not be less, less benefit perhaps, but I don't think any of that has, is, is known. Um, uh, and for those who do develop COVID and are at high risk, um, uh, even after vaccination, um, uh, 
the risk of severe COVID is is reduced, um, but there I think there may still be a role for monoclonals for for the highest risk individuals. But yeah, and I think it's the other way around too. Is the question of if you get a monoclonal, how long should you wait to get vaccinated afterwards? I mean, hopefully we're not going to see a lot of vaccinated people getting COVID, but that's a hope. But so the, I think one of the questions has been, if you get COVID and you get treated with the monoclonal, how long do you wait to get a vaccine, especially if the monoclonal is hanging around in your system? Will it blunt your response to the vaccine or not? And um, I think there have been some recommendations to wait 90 days, um, but um, hoping to get some more information about that in a vaccine substudy in, in the active two trial to try to learn about the vaccine responses after treatment with monoclonals. Um, one of somebody put a comment in the questions about post-COVID, just highlighting a small study that's looking at um, um, evabradine, which for this postural um, um, symptomatology, the POT symptomatology, um, which um, sounds like it had some activity. I'm not familiar with that at all, but I think that is a component of, um, of post-COVID that is being evaluated, um, the orthostatic um, changes that, that are seen. Um, just looking through the other questions here and Well, here's a good one. Ethically, do we think it's that placebo-controlled trials in the high-risk outpatient population with moderate to mild to moderate COVID in the U.S. are still acceptable, given the data on the authorized MABs reducing hospitalization and death? Yeah, I mean, um, with that data, um, for those that are eligible for um, for the MABs under the EUA, I think that. Um, that that is it is not it's not ethical to not um, offer the maps through the EUA um, and uh, this has had a significant impact on you know our, our thinkings around the design of clinical trials conducted here and uh, outside the U.S. Um, and um, I think we're generally moving towards um, having an active comparator. Um, type designed trial um, instead of placebo controlled trials for um, for population study populations that are eligible for the EUA. Yeah, I think it has to be. Um, it has to be. People need to be made aware of the availability of the. Um, of the data for the effectiveness of the treatments. And it's much like, you know, what was going on in the vaccine trials when um, effective vaccines were found. Um, how do you continue placebo controlled trials? And one of the arguments is that, um, that the ability to continue to find other effective treatments is gonna go faster with placebo controlled trials, but participants need to be fully informed about the, the risks and the benefits. Um, so, and the FDA has also made that point clear. There's a question, is there any correlation between the use of monoclonals and the emergence of variants? So that's a great question. Um, we don't have that data. I think there is certainly theoretical concern. Um, the variants emerge under selective pressure, either immune pressure and, um, or uh, one can imagine um, 
there could be selective pressure with a monoclonal antibody on board if there's ongoing viral replication. So um, we don't know the answer, um, but I think it's a theoretical risk and, 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 um, and why um, it is likely in part that combination therapies that have a sort of, uh, higher barrier to resistance or uh, the selection of, of, um, of mutations um, are, are really seem to um, provide an advantage. Yeah, I think the limited information that I don't even know how much if there's published information about what variants were seen in people who were treated with monoclonals, but I think that the continued replication of the virus in the population unchecked in many areas is really the main driver of the of the variants and, and not the therapies that have been given to relatively few um, people. Um, but it's interesting. It's an interesting point. Um, so you know, in, a, in a higher, in a, in an immunosuppressed individual that might um, have more ongoing replication um, and, and, and clear the virus less quickly, uh, it's hard to, and, and it's in that circumstance that I think uh, there's a lot of, um, uh, that, that the emergence of the variant has been postulated um, in those individuals that um, it's, I, I can imagine that the monoclonal antibodies may, with a long tail, could, could, could potentially um, contribute, but something to study and to learn more about. Yeah, absolutely. There's a question here about uh, convalescent plasma and a comment of somebody who was talking about it who made the point that if you were going to use convalescent plasma, um, it would make sense to use it from somebody who recovered from the same geographic region in the same time frame. In other words, to keep up with the changing virus that you use plasma that's current um, and local. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I know a lot of um, places, you know, developed programs for recovered um, people recovered from COVID to be able to donate plasma for use. And as we you know, wait for the final results of some of the still ongoing randomized trials, I think that's a really, it's a really interesting point. Um, I agree. I think the other thing is that the titer really seems to matter, at least from the available data in that, in that small, in that RCT um, where there was um, benefit in the older, in the older, um, individuals, they use a very high titer, um, over one to a thousand. Um, and uh, in, in another trial that was terminated early for lack of benefit, the, the titer used was like over one to 160. So, so um, titer dose might, might really have an impact as well. Yeah. So we, we've covered a lot of territory here today. And I, I, I think, you know, I, I, for those who joined hoping we would share some great um, secret about the treatment that, that we, you know, we're all looking for. I think we've identified more of the challenges than the answers, but I, I do think it is important to, you know, acknowledge the tremendous progress that has been made in this past year and the number of studies that are up and going and that are going to report out. And while we, you know, we need more therapies um, than what we have now, we do have some things that work in high-risk people and finding ways to make those available, we need to continue to, uh, to emphasize. And um, it's, I think this, we need to do this to 
end the current pandemic and to be prepared for future. So the investment in this kind of um, this kind of work is, I think, still really important. But um, I'll let Kara make some closing comments. Um, I just want to thank everybody for for joining us here today, and also to to let you know that that Dr. Chu is going to be doing a webinar on treatment that's got data and slides, and that will be coming up. There'll be a slide in, at the end of this with that. But I encourage you to uh, to listen to her talk. I think it's on April twentieth. But Kara, over to you. Thanks. So I really, we, uh, you know, I really appreciate everyone's um, uh, questions and and Judy, thanks for this conversation. Um, I think we we are definitely in a better place than we were a year ago, um, and uh, I think that um, we will see um, more um, more therapies more therapies coming, and um, it, it's been a, quite a collective global effort to to deal with COVID. So um, thanks for your interest. Yeah, and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, April 20th <laughs> for the webinar. And we'll go over some of the data we discussed today. And thanks to everyone who's been working so hard on all this, all of these studies. It's just enormous effort. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you.